After failing to check in with family, Irene Gakwa, a 33-year-old Kenyan native, was reported missing on March 20, 2022, to the Gillette Police Department. I'm Renee Nelson, your host for Unsolved Wyoming, and this is Irene Gakwa's story. Hey folks, thank you for joining me on this episode. Irene's case is unique in that we still have an active investigation occurring with the most recent updates as of June 1st. I'll get into the updates toward the end of the episode because I want to share with you the incredible interview I did with Irene's oldest brother. And I also had the opportunity to interview Carla Tureen, the director of Safe House Cheyenne, to discuss intimate partner violence and resources. At the end of the episode, I'll have an update from Desiree Tinoco from the Missing People of Wyoming Facebook page, so be sure to stay tuned. Because we are each other's neighbors, folks, and we have to look out for one another. The following interview was conducted on May 5th, 2022, where I had the opportunity to talk with Kennedy Wainaina about his sister, Irene. My name is Kennedy Wainaina, and I'm Irene's older brother. Older brother. And how many siblings are there? We are... Three of us, we have two brothers and one sister. Okay. And so out of the three, which are which one are you in in that? In I'm, the, the, I'm the first born. Oh, goodness. And my brother is the second born. Then my sister is the last born. So she's the baby. She's the baby, yeah. And where are you and your family originally from? We are from Kenya. With the pandemic going on for a few years now, it has to have been hard to not be able to travel home as you typically would have been. Yeah, it's been hard, but uh, thanks and God for video calls, you know. So once in a while, at least, you know, at least probably once or twice a week, we'll call and video chat. It's not the same as being there, but at least it's better than, you know, talking on the phone. Definitely. see somebody's face and talk to them and it's a little better. Definitely. So what's the dynamic between you and your sister or between all three siblings? So for me, I moved from Kenya. So when I moved from Kenya, actually, Irene was, was about nine or 10 because then I moved here. Then, you know, every year my dad worked for an airline. So every year I was able to go home and visit the family. So every time I went home, I always visited her and I even remember going to visit her. So she went to, we all went to boarding school for high school. I remember visiting her in her boarding school and it was, it was always good. You know, we always talked and kept in touch. And, and uh, then when she moved down here, we, we always hang out together on weekends and, you know, out barbecues and hang out with the family. So it was, it was always good. Good. That's that sounds very nice. What a nice relationship you have. Yeah. And so you, you know, so obviously there's a big age difference between you and Irene and that you were already gone by the time she was, you know, nine and nine or ten. And so mm-hmm. uh, do you know, you know, from your experience, what was Irene like growing up? So not as much, but I know, you know, I 
you know, I talked to her and when I went home, I always went home. So going to Kenya, it takes like a whole day to go there. So whenever I go there, I always try to go there for at least two and a half to three weeks. So sometimes even four weeks. So we had time to visit. We even went on vacation together. So I, I got to know her, you know, spend time with her. It's not like, you know, I spent an hour with her. I would spend, you know, a lot of time with her and, Definitely, I would notice growth, you know, like when I left, she was a she was a kid and I would go and she's a teenager and I'd go again. You'd see she's grown and changing, you know, like a young, young woman. She's changing what she thinks is fashionable, you know. So I got to know her and every time I called and even even when she finished high school, she lived with my parents. For, and so every time I'd call home, she was always there. So I'd, I'd talk to them all and catch up. And, and we also kept in touch via text and, and things like that. How would you describe Irene now? So now she's she's uh, she's kind of quiet. I will, I'll give her that. Like I think me and my brother are more outgoing than she is. So for her, she likes more to keep to herself she likes her space but she's she's very you know she's one who always wants the best for everybody she'll you know she doesn't I've never even seen her yell or get mad at anybody she's always kept her calm she might be stressed out but she keeps a smile on her face and try to make everybody get along and she's loving she cares you know she uh and I've, I've through the years, I've gotten to know some of our friends, even in, in Kenya and some of our friends in America. She's uh, she's definitely loving and cares a lot about others and and wants the best for everybody. She sounds incredible. She's an incredible woman, for sure. And so what are Irene's current life goals? So when she came here, she wanted to go to school and she was actually, so she was going to school here in, in uh, Idaho and she was actually doing amazing. I know she even got an award for being like an outstanding student. So her goal was to go to nursing school. That's what she was planning to pursue and hopefully get a career down the road and help, you know, help others, you know, live better better life through the, you know, being healthy and taking care of others. And so that was her life's goal is to take care of others. And that's where she found her fulfillment. Exactly. And, and it doesn't sound like she's too different from her older brothers. Is that correct? Did I, what are you and your, and your younger brother into? Yeah, we all in healthcare. So I'm a pharmacist and my brother is a nurse practitioner. Yeah. So about, the same line. It sounds like you really enjoy Irene as your sister. Can you tell us some of your favorite things about her? Yeah, some of my favorite things is she loved to travel. And that's actually what she was doing in Kenya. She used to. So whenever I went home, we'd always take like a weekend and go somewhere new. And she always very open minded. Some places you went to, it wasn't, it wasn't as fun as you think. But she always was you know, like to travel. Even when she came here, she would travel here and there. She liked to try new things. She likes to try new foods and 
And for her, you know, sometimes you'd get in situations where it's a little, it's a little frustrating or a little stressful or your flight is late. And for her, she just doesn't, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know how she just, she keeps her calm, you know, which is amazing. But yeah, but for me, sometimes I get stressed out <laughs> certain situations. But for her, she was the one, you know, she would tell me all the time, Kennedy, just calm down. So she has a way of just, you know, calming down the situation, even good or bad. She has a way of just bringing down the calm and letting you know it's going to be okay. She just sounds incredibly comforting. Yeah, exactly. And finally, I had to ask about the sequence of events leading to Kennedy and his family reporting Irene missing. Here, Kennedy gets into the details. So she was reported missing on March 20th. Okay. So my sister would talk to my parents. So there's a video app called WhatsApp. So she would talk to my parents at least every other day in Kenya. So she always talked to them. Then I think on February 24th or 25th, she talked to them via video. Then after that, you know, she usually calls every couple of days, but, you know, she's working, going to school. So I, I think a couple of days went by. She didn't really, you know, my dad texted her and said, hey, hope you're okay. Hope school is going well. And she texted back and said, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm busy with school, but I'll call you guys. Then, you know, they text her back, hey, you know, we miss you. We, we haven't heard from you. It's been a few days. So then finally, I think she sent a message, something saying like, oh, my phone fell in the water and I can't really, you know, I can't video call you. Because my parents always video called her. You know, even even me, when I, when I call my parents, we always video call. They like to see you and see your face and talk to you, even if it's just 10, 5, 10 minutes. So they right, tried, yeah. So they tried to video call her. She wouldn't answer, or she'd say, "Oh, I'll call you back," and she never called back. So finally, and and you know, it took a few weeks. Then finally, my dad texts me and says, "Hey, have you talked to your sister?" And I said, "Yeah, I've, I've talked to her. I even text her." So when my dad texts me, I text her and I said, "Hey." are you doing? You're good. And she texts me back and says, she's, she's good. She's just busy with school. So I text my dad and told him, Oh, she's just busy with school, but she'll call you guys on the weekend or something. So time went by, you know, and they were still trying to reach her. And she, then it went to a point where they were sending her messages and she never sent the message back. So that's when I, I think it was, I want to say it was March 19th. You can look on my calendar here and see. That's when my parents called us and said, you know, we think something's wrong because we are texting her. She's not even texting back. But like before she was texting back, but now she's not even texting back. So that's when we we called the police just to do like a welfare check. And they went to the address that she was leaving and they said she's not there. So she was living with her boyfriend. And when they asked the boyfriend, hey, where is she? She said, well, Irene left on the February 24th, 25th. And she just said, oh, I'm tired of this town and I'm going. 
So you try to ask him, well, did she say where she was going or have you talked to her since then? And he said, well, she didn't tell me where she's going. She didn't, you know, I haven't talked to her. I tried to call her. She didn't answer the phone. And so anyway, we ask him, hey, if she left like a month ago, don't you think you should have called you know, us or something and tell us, hey, your sister left a month ago and I don't know, you know, I haven't talked to her. She's not answering my phone. You know, I'm worried about her. What's going on? So anyway, that's when we, the Gillette Police Department, they said on Monday, so that Monday, the 21st, they're going to give the case to a detective to follow up. For us, we knew something was wrong just because it's been a month, you know. But the police department there said, well, she's a grown woman. She's, she could, maybe she decided to move to a different town. So let's uh, try and talk to all her friends and, and see maybe she moved out of state or whatever. Gosh, I, I can't imagine how all of this feels because it just seems from what you've shared with me, I mean, and, you know, and you just are trusting your own gut and your folks are trusting, you know, their own instincts that she wouldn't make such a decision without informing you and her parents. Yeah. Yeah. And to me, she's, she's one, I know she's one that at least talked to my parents every other day. If it went, maybe twice a week, it, it was a rough week, you know? So when they went, you know, so many weeks without calling him and they'd like, at the beginning, they would write a message to write back and say, oh, I'm busy. Then finally, according to, anyway, we've, we've read all the texts to, with my parents and finally there was a message to the, saying, oh, my phone fell in the water, so I can't, you know, I'll, I'll let you know when I get, get a new phone. Then she even texted my brother and said, I, so we have like a family plan. You know how you can do like four of you on a family plan or something on a cell phone. Mm -hmm. So she texted my brother and said, oh, take me off the family plan because I'm going to go get a new number. So to all of us, it made kind of sense. You know, maybe her phone fell in the water. She wants to get a new plan and get a new phone, you know. It all kind of added up, but you know, at the end of the day, you think, why would somebody, if if, if the family plan is cheaper, why would you want to go get on a more expensive plan? But maybe, hey, if you need a new phone, maybe they have an offer where if you get a new line, maybe you get a free phone. I don't know. You know, that's what we all thought. But now that we all this stuff is going on, we're just like, I I really don't know to tell you the truth, what truth and what's not true and that's that's where we are right now is we don't know right and there's there's this question I mean the, the question that's eating at me is was that and it's such a dark question but was I was that Irene who was texting back we don't know, you know? and and so because how convenient that you know her phone is in you know disarray and she's not able to video chat and so if, oh my goodness, this is just very heavy. Yeah, and, and, and now that we read the text over and over again and analyze, we can tell. 
So we are from Kenya. We speak Swahili. And sometimes when we talk, we mix English and Swahili. And I can tell you, even I text my sister uh, on March, I think it was March 4th or 5th. And I can tell you, I, I cannot tell you 100% that was her that texted me back. It could be somebody else that texted me back. Then my dad, also the same thing. He texts my sister. We, 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 we mix both languages, which is weird. But usually we'll mix English, Swahili, and it's normal for us to mix that. But whoever, right. when those texts, you can read the text before, it was a mixture of both. The text after February 24th, they're all in English. They're all in just one language. So there's a, there's a very big suspicion that it was not Irene that texted that. I can't imagine how that feels, discovering, you know, that inconsistency that has to feel very, very scary. Yeah, so that was very scary to us. And, and that's why we were, you know, we were alarmed. And actually that, I think that, yeah, that same week we drove to Gillette. So we live in Boise. So we drove to Gillette and went and met with the detectives there and kind of, you know, we had a meeting with them for like an hour, told them what, what we know, what they know. But at that point, even they were thinking, you know, she's a grown woman. Maybe she decided to move to a different state or she was tired of, of her boyfriend and wants to move somewhere else, you know, and she doesn't want anybody to know where she is. But I said, well, that's not her, you know. As of May 5th, when this interview was conducted, I asked Kennedy where Gillette PD was in their investigation. I'll report the most current updates after the interview, but believe this information described is critical in the timeline of the investigation and the recent developments. So I know they served like 22 warrants. So they're trying to figure out her bank account, cell phone, her, Insta, her Facebook, her WhatsApp account, try to track and see whether it was used, not used. And I didn't even know this, but it's very difficult to get this stuff, like especially when it comes to things like Facebook and WhatsApp. So there's so much, I guess, red tape. So they're waiting and you kind of just, you know, you send them a, a warrant and you kind of just wait, you know, they, you, you can't tell them, hey, this is urgent, this is not urgent. So we're just kind of waiting for them to get back to us because we're trying to figure out when's the last time she used her Facebook or WhatsApp and where did it ping off of, you know, to try and figure out where she is, you know? Absolutely. So, and so, her finances, are they looking at her finances as well? They are looking at her finances to see her bank account, credit card, all those things. So some of them have come back and some of them have not. And really, we just, it's one of those, like, every day it goes by, you're just like, oh, you know, it's hard. It's hard every day. It's hard. You wake up, go to bed thinking about it. You wake up, you wake up 3 a.m. in the morning thinking about it. You wake up again in the morning. It's, it's uh, you know, uh, it's, it's been stressful. And how are your parents holding up all the way over in Kenya? Uh, not very good. 
it's it's tough on them it's tough on them you know i you know it's tough for me and i'm closer i can only i can't even imagine how tough it is for them being even further away i know it's hard on my mom she's you can tell she's not herself you know it's tough on my dad he hides it a little better than my mom but it's tough it's tough you know it's tough not knowing where your daughter is you know a point of concern is the last person to see Irene is her live-in boyfriend. Here I asked Kennedy about his role in the investigation. So it sounds as though Irene's boyfriend is being uncooperative. Yes. So for me, I would say if my girlfriend was missing, I would be the first person out there to try and find her. He has not helped us at all to try and find her. We were talking to him, then I would say probably about March 28th, he stopped talking to us. He went on our phone and he even hired a lawyer. He says, if you guys want to talk to me, talk to my lawyer. So yeah, he's not cooperative at all, which is very frustrating. And, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those... He was the he was the last person to see her, you know. So there's a lot of questions, you know. Where did she go? Who did she live with? You know, all these questions that would help us find her. That you know, he's not coming forward or willing to answer those questions, and that's very frustrating. How long have Irene and her boyfriend been dating? So I would guess maybe a year and a half or so. So they used to actually live here in Boise. So he's actually even come to my house once or twice. So then they used to live here. Then I think he wanted to move to Gillette. And I I don't know, from my conversations with my sister, she didn't really want to move there. But, you know, she moved there for him. And I guess when she moved there, she didn't really like it as much as she thought she would. And there was even talks of her that she wanted to move back to Boise and he didn't want. So I, you know, but those are the conversations that I kind of had with her. And so from, and it's always hard to know what's going on in somebody else's relationship, right? Mm -hmm. And so, but from your impression about their relationship, I mean, was there any red flags was there anything that you were super concerned about ah for me i'll tell you the truth i didn't really like him and he knew that but but he was he was kind of controlling i would say that so he's uh he's manipulative and i didn't really like that about him but you know it's always i i guess i've learned through the years you know it's no matter what you tell somebody, if somebody's in a relationship with somebody, they, they really, I don't know, you can, you can only say, hey, I'm here for you if you need me, but I can't, you know, I tried to tell him, tell her, I, we really don't like him and this and that, and he's controlling you, but, you know, she, you know, she definitely did, I don't know if she decided otherwise, but yeah. Rose-colored glasses. 
they're super yeah. hard, right? To see the truth yeah. um, when you're in that relationship. And, you know, <clears throat> can is there a specific example that you can think of off the top of your head that made you feel as though he is manipulative and controlling over your sister? Yeah, so when my sister... There's a time, actually, so my sister used to live with me, and I said, yeah, you can live with me if you guys are still dating, you know, you can, you can, you can live, you know, you can, I don't have a problem, you, can, you guys can date, and if even you, you want to come to my house and see you, you know, you can, uh, if you can come over, I don't have a problem, you know, this is your, you know, it's your, it's where you're living, so. And if you want to go visit him, that's fine. But, but I think it got to a place where he told her, you know, if you're gonna live with your, uh, with your brother, we cannot date anymore. So she felt like she had to move in with him, so that they can keep dating. So things like that, you know. And to me, um, you know, I I would think if you if you if you if you love somebody and you want to. Be with them, and you want the best for them. You should you should allow the person to you know be who they are and be where they want to be. You, can, you can't tell a person, hey, you can I can only date you if you're here. You know. So he he moved. They moved together to Gillette. Your sister yeah. starts going to school. Where was she working? Where is she working currently? So at the beginning, I think she was working. I know at one point she was working either for, I think FedEx or UPS, one of the two. Then there was a time she was also working for like, uh, like a home health place, I would say. But both places, she quit her job over text. <laughs> which is very unlike my sister. My sister is one that shows up to work, you know, shows up one time. I don't even think she would even, even when we say, oh, today's somebody's birthday, we're having a party or barbecue or something. She's like, no, I'm going to work. After work, if you guys are still here, I'll come and have fun with you guys. But um, I, I, I have to go and do my shift. So she was one that was always so committed to her job. So when she quit her job over text, that's also another red flag. This is not her. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And so did she miss any shifts prior to quitting? No. No? No. Okay. And, and I think one of the jobs, she quit like the day off. Like she's supposed to go to work today and she sent a text and said, oh, I'm not coming to work today. Right. That, I mean, even just hearing you speak about her, she just sounds incredibly responsible. Yeah. Wouldn't do that to her employers. After hearing the details of the circumstances surrounding Irene's disappearance, I asked Kennedy what he knew about the current investigation. Yeah, the police did get some tips from the people of Gillette. So first of all, actually, I want to say the people of Gillette have been very supportive. I can't believe the amount of love and support they've shown up. People have, you know, been sharing on Facebook, social media. There's even a lady that put her picture, her information on the billboard there in Gillette. There's, you know, people 
you know, sending messages left and right, which we really love and appreciate. Everybody has been very supportive. And so the police have gotten some tips and they've followed up on the tips. And unfortunately, most of the tips that they've followed have not led to anything as of right now. But that's not to say if people have any tips, any information, just share. It's better to like share and we follow and, you know, don't be shy to share any information you feel like might help us in any way or form. And I will definitely share the information uh, at the end of the episode about who to contact and um, you know, and who they can who they can call or email if they have any tips or or insight to. I'll definitely make sure that I share that along with Irene's description, and I'll post her her uh, her picture to uh, my my Facebook uh, page as well. And so I think my last question I I do have two more questions because okay. uh, again I'm a, a little curious about you know the controlling behavior was uh, does her boyfriend work or was he not working. Or is he not working? Do you know? He was working. He works okay. from home. Works from home. Yeah. All right. And so I think the the last thing in, in kind of in closing, you know, our interview up and, and I, I, you sort of already said something pretty amazing about the support and everything coming from Jolette, as well as, you know, to make sure that we're, we continue sharing tips. Is there any last thing that you want to say to listeners? Yeah, I want to say thank you for all that you've been doing to help us find her. And I want you guys to know that Irene is a very caring person. And I know we'll find her. And my family is asking for your help. Find her wherever she is. Whatever you can do, share. Or if you've seen something, heard something, please share. My mom and dad are hurting over this. All of us are hurting over this. And anything you can do to help us find her will be greatly appreciated. She's a lady that's greatly loved. And we miss her all right now. And we hope... To find her. I just want to tell you, my my heart goes out to you and your family, and I just deeply hope that you get the answers that you are looking for, and and that we that you do find Irene, and and you know, and hopefully, you know, uh, the community of Jolette and surrounding areas can be helpful in in that search. And so, thank you again so much for for taking time. And, and speaking with me and, and sharing the beautiful story of who your sister is. And she just sounds in, like an incredible person. And so I hope, I hope we find her soon. I hope so too. And I think the wider we share the message, the better, because I, 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 you know, I think, you know, Gillette is a small town and I think maybe we need to share the message a little, you know, the wider we can share the message, the better. As I said before, there are current updates with the investigation. Do you remember the 22 warrants Kennedy said Gillette PD issued? What is actually documented as 24 warrants issued 
for Irene's digital footprint and finances, it was discovered that Irene's fiance, Nathan Heitman, accessed Irene's bank accounts and removed the money. According to court documents, his motive was to, quote, force her to contact him when she needed funds. The affidavit states he did not hear from her. Upon further investigation as a result of a warrant for Irene's Gmail, it was determined Nathan removed money, made unauthorized charges on Irene's credit card, changed Irene's banking password, and deleted her Gmail account. And folks, according to court documents, Nathan used Irene's credit card to make a Walmart purchase, which included a shovel, a pair of boots, and pants. Video surveillance captured Nathan making the purchase and subsequent search warrants also located the boots and shovel in his home. According to Cowboy State Daily article by reporter Jen Kosher, an article linked in the show notes, I highly recommend you read it. It's an excellent article. Nathan was arrested on May 4th and charged with four felony charges for accessing Irene's bank accounts, making unauthorized credit card charges, and deleting her Gmail. He has been released on $10,000 cash or surety bond. He has been officially named a person of interest, but has refused to cooperate with investigators. As of June 1st, he has entered a not guilty plea. Before this, his formal statement to detectives was that after eating in a restaurant one night in late February, Irene announced she was leaving Gillette. He says she packed her clothing into two plastic bags and was then picked up by someone in a dark SUV. As reported by Jen Kosher in her June 1 article, there are no updates from Gillette PD. I also have reached out to the Gillette Police Department, but have not heard back from them. So I'm going to make this the official statement per that article that there are no current updates to report from the Gillette Police Department. And this is where it gets really important, folks, because the Gillette Police Department is asking the public's help in its search for a gray or silver Subaru Crosstrek with Idaho plates that may have been trespassing on private property or in rural areas of Campbell County between February 24th and March 20th. Gillette PD is also seeking info regarding the possible sightings of a 55-gallon metal barrel, which may have been burned and or abandoned in the county. According to jury file page on Irene, and I recommend that you do go look at this. This is also linked in the show notes. They have an amazing timeline on the case, as well as some great background information. Irene is described as a black woman who is five feet, one inches tall and 89 pounds. If you have any information, please contact Gillette PD at 307-682-5155. And folks, I know sometimes it can seem that the littlest detail or something that may seem insignificant shouldn't be reported. But I urge you that if you know anything, anything about Irene and her whereabouts or about this case or something that you have seen or you remember hearing, report it. You never know what piece of information the police need in order to have a significant break in the case. So please contact Gillette PD at 307-682-5155. Crime Stoppers also is offering up to $1,000 in reward money, and you can report your tip anonymously by calling them at 307-228-4276. Let's bring Irene home. Because this case seems to have themes of intimate partner violence, I wanted to speak with somebody from the field. 
I want to make sure that when reporting on these cases, that I'm also providing resources for folks to really incorporate in their lives to engage change or to help somebody else change their lives. I had the opportunity and privilege to interview Carla Tureen, a true veteran in the field of advocacy work. She's been with Safe House in Laramie County for 25 years, folks, and has served as the director for 21 years. Here is her interview. And so, Carla, can you tell us what your title is and where it is that you work? I'm the executive director to Safe House Services. It's the program in um, Laramie County that provides services for domestic violence, sexual assault, stalking, human trafficking, and other intimate partner um, violence. Wow, that's that's a lot. That's a lot that you cover. <clears throat> yes, it is. And so primarily, you know, so you're, you're helping folks, um, you know, get through these really hard, you know, and traumatic um, events. One of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, you know, what is the issue around intimate partner violence? Maybe some of the signs that folks should look for, whether they're in a relationship or are a friend of somebody who might be in a relationship that can become violent. What what are the signs that you would suggest people look for? So there is quite a list of signs. One of the things that we notice more in Wyoming is isolation where um, people are kept away from their loved ones, away from other community members and um, kept in the dark, which is easy to do in Wyoming because a lot of Wyoming, it's a long ways to the neighbor or to the next person in town. But isolation can also be um, in in the city of Cheyenne, living next door to somebody, being kept in the house, not given a car, not given a phone, Um, kept totally controlled and in that relationship. And so that's one of the things that we notice a lot when we talk to people, they may have lost all um, of their support system because they've, they've pushed them away. They haven't contacted their parents in years and because at the request of their um, spouse or their, their intimate partner. And so that is one of the things we notice. Um, I think that people expect that, that you're going to see bruises and black eyes in order to identify domestic violence. And that is really the furthest from the truth. Um, those, those often, they heal pretty quickly, but the, the other things that happen, such as financial um, abuse, uh, using the children, and things like that, the verbal abuse, um, those are hidden. You don't see those. Your neighbor, your your sibling's spouse, they may come off as a very caring, loving person, but behind closed doors, it's entirely different. The other thing that I want to touch on too, you know, and because all of that sounds very measured, right? And so, you know, mm-hmm. you know, I think sometimes society thinks that it only affects certain people or, you know, a demographic or, you know, a social class. In your experience, in all the years that you've been doing this, is that true? Do you see certain, you know, folks or is it is it across the board? Intimate partner violence doesn't discriminate. It absolutely does not discriminate. We, we see people who um, are on all 
all sides of the spectrum as far as economically, educationally, um, where they live, where they um, shop. I mean, it, it doesn't matter. It's totally indiscriminate. And we, um, that is a, a myth that people believe, easily believe that you must um, be poor or you have no support system. Some people um, truly are, become isolated out of, out of embarrassment. They don't want somebody to know what's going on in their life. And, and again, that doesn't have any, any kind of, um, it, it doesn't have any kind of um, discriminate moments. Uh, it really is very, very open domestic violence and partner violence. It can be any, any walk of the world. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us. My last question, and, and it's more of a for our folks who are listening is, you know, so if you suspect that you have a friend or a loved one who is experiencing intimate partner violence, or you yourself are experiencing intimate partner violence, what would you recommend their first step to be in order to seek help? So if I have a friend or a family member that, that I believe is um, experiencing intimate partner violence, the first thing I want to do and I want to tell people to do is listen. Just take a moment and listen. Because once you you believe you know the answer to somebody's um, how to get out of their thing, immediately you're going to push them away from the change or push them away from getting help. Because everybody is different. Even though we see a thousand domestic violence, sexual assault um, victims every year, they're none are the same. They're all different. We need to take the moment and listen to them and listen to their story. And then when we safety plan, those have to be done so that it fits the victim's needs because they know that offender better than anybody. And they know they're what's going to be safe for them and how it's going to be safe to get out. We know that the most violent time in a relationship is when somebody decides to leave. When the victim chooses to leave and walk away, it becomes the most violent time and the most opportune time for them to get seriously injured or killed. So we want a safety plan and we want to do it to the best of the ability to make sure that we do it safely. So if you believe that somebody you know um, is experiencing violence, then the first thing you need to do is take a moment and listen and then know your resources. Know where you can get them help because it doesn't do any good to listen to them and then say, wow, that's a bad problem. I don't know what you do. So if you take that moment and you really look at your county, look at your city, look where you're at and find out what the resources are so you can then give them the name of somebody they can call. So in Laramie County, we encourage everybody to pass out our phone number at Safe House, um, get it to those people that need to know what to do. And we're, we can certainly help them through that moment of crisis. Excellent. And I'll be sure to link that at, um, in our show notes and, and to say that number after we hang up. So that way folks have that number available to them. And so, and so that's for Laramie County. Throughout Wyoming, uh, are there similar resources available? Absolutely. There is a domestic violence sexual assault program in every county in the state of Wyoming, including the Wind River Indian Reservation. So there are so many ways to get a hold of, of um, some help. 
it happens in every county. And you can, even if you call Laramie County, we can tell you a phone number for, say, Fremont County or any other county in the state. We have access to that. There's also the Wyoming Coalition Against Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault. And you can link onto them and it will take you directly to the county you're in and where you can get some help. Excellent. Carla, thank you so much for your time. I think sharing, you know, again, what, you know, are some prominent signs to look for, as well as being mindful that this isn't just a problem that affects certain people, but that it can affect literally anyone. And so I think that's a really powerful knowledge to arm people with. So thank you again for your time. I wanted to share with you one of the statistics that Carla Terrine shared with me during her segment. And it was after I asked the question, are her services primarily geared towards women or is it primarily women who use the services? She actually shared with me that according to their statistics, 15 to 20% of the services that they provide are to male victims. Safe houses for everyone, folks. So again, make sure that you share that number when you feel like it's necessary to everyone. Folks, as I mentioned before, I have Desiree Tinoco, founder of the Facebook group page, Missing People of Wyoming, and she's going to be sharing with us weekly updates on Wyoming cases that have been reported and vetted through DCI and or are coming from law enforcement. So you'll hear something about Rock Springs seeking information about runaways. Here's that segment with Desiree. My name is Desiree Tinoco. I'm the founder of Missing People of Wyoming. We just started a nonprofit for that. Uh, the group was designed to be an equal platform to share missing persons cases, regardless of their background or circumstances, and to help bridge the gap between law enforcement and the public in regards to missing persons. Uh, it's been a wonderful tool. Uh, members of the public can share cases. Everything is verified uh, to ensure they are to ensure they are legit missing persons cases. I've also worked closely with DCI, with them uh, creating their uh, database and getting some information out for the public uh, in regards to missing persons. It's so incredible that you're doing this, Desiree. One of the things that I wanted to mention is that I joined the Facebook group actually before I even started this podcast. And one of the things that I noticed is that there are people who are in the group who aren't from Wyoming. And so they'll say, share in, you know, Georgia, you know, or shared in, you know, Oregon. And I think that's such an incredible tool that it's not just Wyoming people who are, you know, are on this page, but it's people from all across the country. So the reach of this page is phenomenal. Yeah, it's it's been wonderful. I think one of the first times I really noticed the impact of it was uh, when a friend of mine said he had friends from he's up he's from up in North Dakota and he he had friends on the group that had no connection to Wyoming um, or Casper or myself and seeing seeing those friends on that group and and how far it reached and this was early on when I started the group too um, it's it's been wonderful you know when somebody goes missing uh, the worst thing that happens is borders whether it be state uh, reservation country borders it's really hard to uh, kind of work together on cases, uh, you know, it, it makes it much more difficult. Definitely. And so I think this is a really powerful tool and it seems as though it's, you know, it, achieving what it is that you planned, which is 
what from what you've shared with me, just keeping people informed and, you know, making sure that the public is aware. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of people, when they first get involved with missing persons, they're surprised by how many people go missing. There is a lot of turnaround, um, especially with uh, juveniles, runaways. Uh, so, you know, you'll see you'll see a lot of those come in and out of the system frequently trying to understand, you know, they're probably 90, 95 percent of them are found within the first few weeks or so. But those others, you just don't know which ones just don't get found. And that's that's what we're really concerned about trying to get those ones home. Right. And at some point we will do a longer episode because I would love to for folks to know your background and, you know, kind of your history and your journey to starting this Facebook group. And so I'm really excited to to do that. And that will be probably in the next couple of weeks. And I want folks to know that we plan on airing this segment specifically weekly. And so rather it's attached to a full length episode where, you know, I'm covering a case, a Wyoming case, or it's a standalone segment in that we want to make sure that people are getting this information from the Facebook page in another medium. So uh, with that, Let's start with what you have, a current report of missing people of Wyoming. Sure. So first, I'd like to say DCI doesn't release cases to the public until they've been missing for over a week. Because of that turnover, there are a lot of frequent flyer runaways. Having said that, we have a few new cases that have come in today on their website. Akira Cause, age 16, was last seen on May 27th in Casper, Wyoming. She's a white female, approximately 5'3", 130 pounds, with blue eyes and brown hair. She was last uh, seen wearing a black shirt, black pants, and two-tone gray backpack. She may be wearing glasses or contacts. If you have any information, please contact the Casper Police Department at 307-235-8278. Jasmine Redka, age 17, was last seen in Cheyenne, Wyoming, on May 26th. She's a white female, approximately 5'6 and 150 pounds, with hazel eyes and black hair and pierced ears. It's unknown what she was wearing at this time. If you have any information, please contact the Cheyenne Police Department at 307-637-6500. Michael Lott, age 52, was last seen on the Wind River Reservation on May 26. He's a Native American male, approximately 5'11, 280 pounds with brown eyes and gray hair, was last seen wearing black shirt, blue jeans, and a black NY hat. He's known to have a few tattoos. Uh, If you have any information regarding this case, please contact Wind River Agency at 307-332-7810. Mercedes Gibson, 16, was last seen May 25th in Casper, Wyoming. She's a white female, approximately 5'5", 200 pounds, with blue eyes, brown hair. She was last seen wearing a black hoodie, green and black checkered sleep pants. She has pierced ears and a pierced nose. If you have any information, please contact Casper Police Department at 307-235-8278. Madison Wright, age 17, was last seen May 24th in Casper, Wyoming. She's a white female, approximately 5'4 and 110 pounds, with green eyes, black hair, and pierced ears. Anyone with information, please contact the Casper Police Department at 307-235-8278. Dante Antelope, age 17, was last seen May 22nd in Riverton, Wyoming. She's a Native American female, approximately 5'6", 180 pounds, with brown hair and eyes. 
She was last seen wearing a black and red hoodie, dark blue jeans, and a, a backpack with a Nike sign on it. Anyone with information, please contact the Riverton Police Department at 307-856-4891. Donovan Miller, age 15, was last seen May 21st in Casper. He's a white male, approximately 5'8", 118 pounds, with brown hair and eyes. He was last seen wearing a black pants, gray hoodie, black jacket. If you have any information, please contact Casper Police Department at 307-235-8278. Just released today by Rock Springs Police Department, they're looking for two runaway teens who were last seen Wednesday, June 1st. If you have any information on their whereabouts, please contact their police agency at 307-352-1575. Michael Whip, 16, George Sanchez, 16. And then we should say something about, I don't really know how to word it that um, DCI doesn't release that quickly. Like they wait a week before they release because of the turnover with runaways. I don't really quite know how to say that nicely. And I didn't know if you wanted to address that or not. Yeah, of course. And so, yeah, I can definitely do that. All right. So one thing to know about runaways is DCI does wait one week in, to release any information uh, specifically with juvenile runaways. And the reason being is that the turnarounds, meaning that once that somebody is reported missing and or a runaway, the turnaround means is that they are located within that week. If they're not located within that week, then that is when they release the information so that the public is aware that there is a runaway to be on the lookout for. Happy to say we have two cases from Natrona County and a case from Fremont County that have been cleared over this last week. That's fantastic. That's such great news, Desiree. One of the things that we also wanted to mention is that if a case has been cleared uh, or, you know, has been moved off of the missing persons, you know, database, we may or may not say the names because of privacy issues, and uh, and safety concerns. And so we'll just say that a case is cleared. And so that way folks know that cases are being cleared. We just may not say the name specifically associated with those cleared cases. All right. Desiree, is there anything else that you that you want to say, you know, as, as we wrap up the segment? I just want to thank you so much. I think getting a podcast going is much needed for our communities. We have several missing persons cases throughout the state. I appreciate working with you. I'm excited to see how this evolves. Thank you, Desert. Folks, thank you for joining me on this podcast. As you know, or many of you know, this is actually the very first episode out. And I appreciate you tuning in and listening and sharing and downloading and doing all the podcasty things. So I hope you tune in next week to hear our update from Desiree Tinoco on missing people of Wyoming and that you tune in in a couple weeks from now to hear another full-length episode. Our next case is going to be Anne Elliott. I hope you join me.